Good morning, Lighthouse family. I'm Denise Hayward. Today's scripture is Nehemiah 8, 9 through 12. And if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Thank you, Denise. You may be seated. And let's pray together. Lord, this is a, um, an important moment. Uh, it was an important moment in their day to hear your heart and to be reoriented to your word. And it produced sorrow and grief initially, but joy eventually. And Lord, that, that appears to be the pattern of life for the follower of Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd give us perspective and that we would understand that joy is something that is so powerful. It is so life-giving. And Lord, for those that, that might be in a, a tough moment in life, a valley kind of a moment, Lord, um, pray that you would encourage your sons and your daughters. And Lord, for those who don't know you, I pray, God, that you would today break through and bring them into a saving relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Nehemiah, the wall is built, the gates are hung. The security team is in place, the worship team is formed, the preacher and the Bible teachers are ready. So the, the first thing they do after getting uh, the wall built, the gates hung, and everybody kind of appointed and in their proper positions is they uh, call for what amounts to be the first church service. It's a big, giant worship gathering. And they know it's going to be a huge service. There's going to be thousands and thousands of people. So they chose a place that would accommodate a large group. And they went to the water gate. And it was a large area on, uh, inside within the city. And they built a stage. And the crowd gathers. Ezra gets up onto the stage. Thirteen other men get up there with him. Ezra unrolls the scroll of the Torah, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And he begins preaching a six-hour sermon. And the people are standing. They are engaged. They are amening. They are lifting their hands to the Lord. They are bowing their heads at times in humility. And, and questions are starting to arise within the people. You know, the, the word is being read and they're going, well, what about this and what about that? And so the Levites, the, the Levitical priests were interspersed throughout that giant crowd and people could ask them questions about the scripture. And so they were helping them to understand what the word of God was saying. And so... The word of God was being read, but it was also being explained so that the people could understand. We call this today expository teaching. It's where uh, you exegete 
the scripture. And what that means is exegesis is the opposite of eisegesis. Exegesis is the practice of, of reading out of the text what the writer has put into the text and what the writer wants us to understand. So we want to find that out, and we want to explain that as clearly as we can. Eisegesis, on the other hand, is taking a text and then importing your own meaning into it and making it say what the writer or what the Holy Spirit, we would say, is wanting to say to us. And this is so common today. That preachers just take the Bible and they make stuff, you know, verses, just take them willy-nilly and make them say stuff. That was never the original intent, and it's a real problem. It's been a problem, really, from the beginning. Paul uh, talked about it in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 17. He says, we are not like so many people are, preachers are, peddlers of, the, of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak Christ. So, so we aren't peddlers. Now, he's not talking about bicycle riders here, right? He's talking about people who are selling something. They're peddling their wares. So the Bible to them is a commodity that they can sell, that they can get money or some other gain from, you know, pushing or peddling the scripture in the way that they're peddling. They're twisting it. They're manipulating it in order to manipulate people. So Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 4, 2, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Like, we, we will not do that. That's a line we will not cross ever. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Here's... We are, we're not going to edit the Bible. We're not going to apologize for the Bible. We're just going to just say it openly, plainly, so that people can hear God's heart clearly. So God's people are hearing God's word properly taught and properly explained. They're understanding the meaning. And because they understand the meaning, they are devastated they are broken they are weeping they are sorrowful so that brings us to our first observation this morning and that is the word of God is a mirror it's a mirror verse 9 Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. I mean, they were being devastated by what they were hearing. Ezra preached his six-hour sermon through the Torah, and the people just began to cry. They began to weep. So why? Why did they begin to weep? Someone, <laughs> a good friend of mine from the church here, suggested to me that perhaps it was because they were standing for six hours through a sermon. <laughs> well, in fact, they were weeping because they saw their reflection in the mirror of God's word and they didn't like what they saw. It's an interesting dynamic. When we read the Bible with, with the proper posture of humility, posture you know, where we want to hear what God says, the Bible then is reading us. When we open up God's word, God's word is opening us and revealing things about us. God is reflecting back to us the reality of our condition. Every morning we have to, I mentioned this last week, every morning we have to get up, look in the mirror, and assess the damage, right? <laughs> and we make the necessary adjustments, and we fix this, we comb that, all the rest, and hopefully we, at least we get ourselves put together to the point where people don't scream when they see us. We figure... 
It's a low bar, but we can probably get there. So this, this is a good analog for how we interact with God's word, a mirror. The difference is that God's word reflects back uh, to us our image at a much deeper level than a physical mirror does. So in Hebrews 4.12, it says that the word of God is living and active. It exposes the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So it gets beneath the surface, beneath the actions, and it gets down to the things we think and to the motives behind what we do or don't do. That's as deep as it goes. It gets down to the depths of us. I remember being a young Christian. I was supposed to meet a guy in front of an, his apartment building. I just met this guy, and uh, he was a drummer, and we were putting together our band back in the 80s, and uh, we were just gonna start sort of working up a set of music. And as I'm waiting for uh, this drummer, Christian drummer, to come out of his apartment building, I see somebody sitting on a bench just a few feet away. And I go over to that person, I sit down next to them, and I, I just started talking to them about Jesus. And, uh, and, and so I eventually uh, lead this person sitting on the bench uh, in a sinner's prayer to receive Christ. And, and as I was doing that, as this person was praying to receive Christ, my drummer friend comes out of the building to find me on the bench leading this person to Jesus. At the end of that day, I had some time to reflect upon what had happened. Before I witnessed to that guy, I thought with great specificity, I had this thought, wouldn't it be amazing if my drummer friend came out while I was witnessing to this guy? I thought that thought. And my motive, I mean, the, the, the greatest motive for me doing that that day, I discerned because I was convicted, was to impress a drummer. That, that was my motive. I had just recently read in the Bible where Jesus is talking, beware of practicing your righteousness before men in order to be seen by them. And so the word of God exposing my thoughts and intents. And Jesus says, if you do it to be seen of men, you have your reward. Duh. I was looking into the mirror of the word. The mirror of the word showed me my thoughts and intents. I had to repent, not, not of leading somebody to Christ. It's amazing. God can use us with all kinds of funky stuff going on inside of us. Uh, I didn't repent of leading somebody to Jesus, but I repented of my desire to have the applause of man. So Hebrews 4.13 says, all things are naked and open unto God. He sees it all. Right down, every thought and intent. So Jesus' little brother, James, used the mirror analogy in his letter that goes by the same name, James. It's an awesome letter. We went through it, oh, maybe a year ago or something like that. But it's a, it's a rubber-meet-the-road kind of, kind of letter. And in the, in the first chapter, is so powerful. He says things like, hey, take joy. Count it all joy. In the midst of your difficulty, take joy. Count it as joy. And, and ask God for wisdom, and he's going to give it to you. Ask him, you know, if you don't understand why things are happening, ask God for wisdom. He'll give it to you abundantly and liberally. He tells us about God's character. He says that God is good. In fact, all good uh, and, and perfect gifts come down from the Father of lights. And that God doesn't change. He's, he, he, there's no variance with God. He, he isn't morphing or evolving or shifting or turning. He never does. He won't change his mind about you. You don't have to worry about that. But then he says, therefore... James 1.21, be quick 
to listen. Be quick to listen. Now, we usually apply this to our listening skills with one another, right? And there, and there is certainly some application there. And, and God gave us a pretty good clue, you know, when he gave us two, two ears that hang off the side of our heads and one tongue that's parked in a garage. And it should probably stay parked in there more often than what it does. But when James says, be quick to listen, the context dictates that he's talking about listening to God. Be quick to listen to God. Listen for his voice. Be quick, we would say today, to embrace his narrative for your life, for your situation that you're in. As life unfolds to you, view it through the lens of God's word. Be quick to do that. Don't embrace other kinds of narratives because that'll get you sideways in a hurry. But people can look into the mirror of God's word, and and this is true too, and not be changed. It depends on the, the attitude that we take into our study and our reading of the word. So James, he writes it this way, James 1.22, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. So there it is, the mirror analogy. He's like a person, wakes up in the morning, looks at his natural condition, Verse 24, for he looks at himself and then he goes away and at once forgets what he looked like. So the the hearer only of the word, the hearer who has no intention of doing the word, looks at it, sees their reflection, and then walks away and it never penetrates anything. They forget what they saw. There was a group of very religious people in Jesus' day who studied scripture diligently. They, they were the most conservative of the, of the believers in that day. They were known as Pharisees and they were studying the scripture daily, but they were missing the whole point. <laughs> so Jesus says to them in John 5, 29, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life. And it's they, the scriptures, that bear witness of me. Yet you refuse to come to me. They refused. Think about that. They refused to come to the one who is the center, the theme, the heart of the word of God. So they brought a supposition, a presupposition. It's like, what is this saying? As long as it's not about him. They weren't willing to surrender their lives to Jesus. They look in the mirror each and every day as they crack open the scroll and nothing happened. They remained the same. There was no change. There was no sorrow. It just was the same. So obviously the hearer in James's analogy looking into the mirror, it has the hearer has a relationship with the Bible, right? Cuz there's today hearers of the word and not doers as well. And there may be some in here today that you're a hearer. Well, you are a hearer because you're here and I'm preaching the Bible. So we're all hearers at this moment. But not all of us are doers. And so there are people, they hear the word, they go to church. They may even consider themselves Christian, but they have no intention of changing their life. No intention of of surrendering their life to Jesus, none. James says that person not only isn't getting any benefit from the Bible, but actually they're deceiving themselves when they read it. There's a negative kind of thing going on. 
So what's the deception that happens when people, you know, study the Bible, listen to the Bible being taught or whatever, and they have no intention of doing it, no intention of surrendering to God? The, the deception is that you are fooling yourself into thinking you don't need Jesus. You are fooling yourself. You're fine as you are which is a lie. The whole warp and woof of the Bible is that you're not fine, I'm not okay. Humanity is not, apart from God, in a good condition at all. We are separated from God by our sin and that's what looking intently to the word of God will show you. Ezra preached the word and the Levites explained the word to the people. The people understood the word. The result was sorrow for their sin. It devastated them. They wept and they grieved. They looked in the mirror without the, the filter of self-deception that some people, I'm fine. I I'm, don't want to change anything. I'm good. And they saw the reality of their condition and it absolutely broke them. But they didn't stay there. They didn't stay there. Listen, God won't have us park our lives in sorrow and grief. He doesn't want us pitching a tent there and dwelling there. Okay, so that brings us to our second observation. Joy, joy is always our destination. Joy is always, for God's people, it's always our destination. Verse 10, then he said to them, go your way. They're weeping, right? They're all mourning and weeping. Go your way. Go home. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet wine. Like, it's time to celebrate. Send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's your strength. We are always moving in the direction of joy, always. Why? Well, there's a number of reasons. Let me throw out just a few. First of all, joy is part of the substance of the eternal kingdom of God. It's part of the fiber, the substance of the eternal kingdom. Paul put it this way in Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Joy is eternal. The joy of the Lord is eternal. It's not going to terminate. In fact, it's going to bloom and increase as we move in to the next phase. So we're always moving towards it. We're always moving towards it. We move through sadness and through sorrow on the way to greater and greater joy. But joy is always where we're going. So weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes in the morning, doesn't it? And those who sow in tears they're gonna reap with shouts of joy. We're always heading, we're th going through the sorrow, through the tears, and into joy. That's the trajectory of our walk, of our life, of our path. But thirdly, sorrow isn't replaced by joy, and we will have sorrow, for sure. It isn't replaced by joy. Sorrow is actually turned into joy, and there's a difference. It may seem like a strange thought, but sorrow is the stuff joy is made from. Jesus put it pretty plainly in John 16, 20. He said, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into Joy, not it will be replaced by joy, it's going to turn into it. It's gonna be transformed somehow into joy. 
Then he illustrated it this way. John 16, 21, a young or a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. Moms, time has come. <laughs> Go to the hospital. Contractions are happening. It's a painful time. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. It was an amazing thing for me to witness when our first child, our daughter, Caitlin, was born some 30 plus years ago. It was a long, hard labor, 20 plus hours. And it was painful, you know, they wouldn't let me take meds and um, <laughs> my pain was emotional, but, but after over 20 hours of excruciating labor, my wife just working and laboring, then for our little Caitlin to be born and to come into the world, and they I cut the cord, and they took our little daughter, and they placed her in my wife's arms. And, and just a moment ago, my wife's face was just, you know, furrowed with pain and tortured, you know, just a tortured countenance because of the pain. And all of a sudden, her countenance was turned into this soft, beautiful, joyful glow. And she just had this incredible satisfaction on her face, this joy. Tears of joy were streaming down her face. And at that moment, her anguish was forgotten. Now, she would never let me forget it, but that's a whole different story. Just kidding, honey, wherever you are. Sorrow is like that for the Christian. It's, it's the labor process that gives birth to greater joy in us. Well, also God's word, it nurtures our joy. Now it produced sorrow in God's people in Nehemiah's day, and it does that today too. But the joy, or I'm sorry, the sorrow is formed into joy. So God's word, therefore, nurtures our joy. So 1 John 1, 4, what does John say? One of the very purposes of him writing his epistle, he says, these things we are writing to you so that your joy may be complete. This is one of the primary reasons you have the Bible today from God's perspective, from the Apostle John's perspective, is that your joy would be complete. Jesus said it. John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. God is serious about joy. Do you live in the joy of the Lord? Do you experience the strength that comes from the joy of the Lord? Listen, just one more thought on this. Pastors, church leaders, listen, if, you, if you're in any role where you are teaching anyone, discipling them, listen to this. Pastors, church leaders, disciplers, we work, or we should, be working for your joy. This was such a, such a revelation to me when I heard it, when I was initially being called by God to pastor and to teach his word. 2 Corinthians 1.24, not that we lord it over your faith, Paul says, his, his position. I don't take my position as an apostle, as a teacher of the word of God, to lord it over you and, and be the boss of you and tell you what to do. I'm not doing that. I'm not about that. I'm not interested in that. But we, here's what we do. We work with you for your joy. 
Man, I want you guys to be just bursting with the joy of the Lord. That's the goal. Paul said it in Philippians 1.25, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Like this is the ministry goal. This is why we're doing what we're doing, that the joy of Jesus will just be full up in you. And do you realize how powerful that is when somebody's walking in the joy of the Lord? You, you are a walking billboard for, for Jesus at that point. Like people are looking at you. They're, they're impacted by you just because you are full of the joy of the Lord. Listen, if you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your joy will never end. It will never terminate. We're on our way to a land where there is no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. It's a land where there is what David called in Psalm 16, fullness of joy. Concentrated, undiluted, uncontended with joy. This joy awaits us in its fullness, but it's readily available to us now through Christ. So even the hard times, we count them as joy. It's working for us. It's working for our good. It's working for the, the tough time that you're having right now in your life. The, the conflicts in your relationships, the difficulty finding a job, the, the, you know, your car breaking down, not having the money to get it fixed. The, I mean, all that stuff. It's not fun. We don't like it. But you can count it. You actually have the ability to put this in the category of joy, something that works for your joy. It's going to be transformed. It's a birthing process that's bringing you joy. And if you take that perspective, it, it, will, it will lighten the heaviness that you feel. And it will pass. And when we get there, gang, in the presence of the Lord... What's going to happen? Well, Jude says, to him who's able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, he's going to present you before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jude, verse 24. There's only one chapter of Jude. Jude verse 24. What will be the ethos before the throne of God when we arrive? Great joy. Not, not, oh, we're cooking pretty good up here in heaven, you know, in the presence of the Lord with this joy thing. I'm feeling pretty, no. Not, not, not like 70, 80% kind of joy. No, great joy. David, fullness of joy. Like joy, we, we can't probably wrap our heads around right now. We get the foretaste, the foretaste. This life is about foretaste. We get the, the nibble, and, and the full meal is coming. And so we take our nibbles. We enjoy the riches that, that we are able to gain in this life spiritually, and it's delightful, and it's more than enough. But man, when we are in the presence of our Lord, it's great joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah tells the people. That was Nehemiah's message to God's people then. It's the Holy Spirit's message to us now. James says, we, we aren't like the hearer only looking in the mirror and then walks away, forgets what he saw. No, we are ones who look into the perfect law of liberty. It's a different kind of way of looking at the scripture. We, we don't keep law, but rather the law is written in us 
and the law now keeps us. Psalm 119 verse 45 says, I shall walk in a wide place, embracing God's word, putting myself under the authority of the Lord and, and, you know, and receiving it as the word of God. Lord, you have authority over me. You're the boss of me. And Lord, you're so good to me. You don't bind me up and inhibit me. You bring me into liberty. Freedom and liberty is not being able to do whatever we want whenever we want. That leads to bondage. It's doing what we were made to do. That's liberty. And the word of God becomes the mirror, the perfect law of liberty for us as we find ourselves moving with God. When we're out of step, out of sync, when we find something that's off, oh, I see it in your word, Lord. Oh, I'm sorry, God. God's people were weeping. They were broken over their sin. And though they were encouraged to shift emotional gears, get over it, enough crying, they had a hard time. I want you to notice this little detail. And the third, third last point this morning is get over it. <laughs> Verse 11. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Now the, the, the Catholic in me, grew up Catholic, right? The, oh, be quiet. Now that's more in line with what holiness, be quiet. When we would go to church, you know, as a kid, you, the moment you, you get to the top of the stairs and, and get to the holy water and you, you don't say nothing. Quiet. Shh. So I always equate, you know, quiet with holiness. He's not saying that. He's not saying be quiet because you know this day is holy, be quiet as in don't make a noise. He's saying stop crying. You, you're, keeping, you're just weeping and crying and carrying on. Stop it. Verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared. They finally got it. They finally got it. Like, the people, they were still upset, they were still emoting, they were still tore up by their sin. Listen, Satan would like nothing better than to put a giant rearview mirror in front of you where you're always looking back, you're always looking at your failures, what a rotten Christian you are, how you failed back then, all that stuff. Just always just, you know, stewing on that stuff. Listen, it was God's will that they stop weeping and grieving over their sin. And God said, stop it. And it was God's will that they begin rejoicing. God's will. I believe this is a word for some of you whose sins and failures haunt you. Romans 8.1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for you who are in Christ. No condemnation. Therefore is a, you know, a, a summary word. It's summing up the previous thoughts. And so we're boiling something down in Romans 8.1. It's the, it's the logical end. In Romans 3.20, Paul, Paul summed up his indictment of mankind. This is where we're at in, on Wednesday night. He sums up the, his indictment on mankind by saying, Therefore, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So summing it up. Chapters 1, 2, 3, showing that, man, all people need Jesus. There's no one righteous. And so, so by the works of the law, by you trying to, you know, be as good as you can, no one is going to be justified in God's sight that way. It's a therefore of condemnation of all humanity. No human effort can justify. But in Romans 8, we have a therefore of no condemnation. 
And this is the essence of the gospel. This is what the gospel is. The very core of God's message to the world, what we proclaim, what we lay our lives down for, what we reach out to our neighbors and nations. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You know the story, many of you. A woman was caught in adultery and was thrown down naked before Jesus and her accusers were all pressuring Jesus, you know, on, on what he was gonna do about the situation, you know, trying to you know, get him trapped using the law of Moses and all that. So Jesus calmly, coolly dismissed each of the condemning crowd one by one, and when it was just left to him and this poor humiliated girl uh, lying at his feet, he asked her, where did your accusers go? Doesn't anyone condemn you anymore? And she looks at him and goes, I guess not. And Jesus says, neither do I. This woman was just in bed with another man. And Jesus is telling her, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. No condemnation for this adulterous woman. So too, for you who have come to Jesus, you came naked and honest before the Lord. There is no condemnation for you. No condemnation for you who have committed adultery. No condemnation for you who have been divorced. No condemnation for those of you who have gone through bankruptcy. No condemnation for you who have lied and raped and whatever else. No condemnation if you're in Christ, none, none. Go and sin no more. Go and be truly free. The joy of the Lord is your strength. When Jesus said that to the woman, I believe his tone was not, hey, I'll, I'll let you off the hook this time, lady, but don't let it happen again. No, I believe his tone was, go your way. You're a free woman. By the word that I'm sharing with you, the love that I have for you, I'm setting you free from the bondage to those things that were destroying your life. I'm setting you free from those things that you thought you had to have. And I'm empowering you to live a whole new kind of life. You're in me now. My joy is in you. And you can look squarely into the law the mirror of my word. And it might produce sorrow for a minute, but because of my grace, sorrow is gonna give birth to joy. There's no condemnation for you ever again. The joy of the Lord is your strength, church. Is there something that haunts you in your life? Is there a rearview mirror in front of you it's time to be free. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes it's, it's just hard to wrap our heads around, around grace. And grace, it isn't a license for us to go and do stupid stuff. It actually teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It, it, it shapes our desires at the depth, at the point of the heart. And we're so, we're so hung up on our, on our performance at times and our past failures at times that we, we get stuck in the mud and rather then fixing our eyes upon you, the author and the finisher of our faith, we fix our eyes on, on us. And when we do that, it's just kinda, well, it's not joy-inducing. 
It's joy robbing. So Lord, I pray over us this morning. I pray for us as a church. I pray for this house. Be a house of prayer, house of joy. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. A house of honesty, Lord. That we can be honest. That when we're convicted and you show us that we're, we're out of line and out of sync, it's not to condemn us. But it's rather in order that we might be cleansed and renewed and realigned with you. Revived for you. Thank you that every sin that we have ever committed has been paid for through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our God, our King, who gave himself for us. Lord, for those who need renewal this morning of joy, they've been walking in sadness. Lord, I pray that their robes of sadness would be replaced with a crown of joy, with robes of praise and rejoicing. Some of you just need to receive this this morning. It's a word of liberation. It's what God wants for you. Stop your crying. Stop being down all the time about everything that's not right, about how you failed and all that kind of stuff. Stop. You can. You can stop. Go home. Cook a big old steak. Have a celebration. Drink a glass of sweet wine if you're a wine drinker. Don't if you have a problem with alcohol. <laughs> and rejoice in the Lord. He's so good. He's so good. He's better than you know. No matter how great you think he is, he's greater. No matter how much you think he loves you, he loves you more. Father, unleash joy in us, joy that will reflect well upon you as we make our way through this life. Meet us at the table, Lord, as we behold once again that massive work of love and justice. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are a Christian here this morning, you can make your way to the communion table. And as you do, let me encourage you. Uh, let God speak to you. Let God confront you with his love. If you're not a Christian here this morning and you've heard the word and you're going, man, I'm, I'm one of those hearer-only people that you were talking about. Like, I, I like reading the Bible. I like hearing the Bible taught, but I've never been interested in changing my life, trusting my life to God, but today you are. I want you right now, bow your head right where you're seated and pray to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I realize it today. So I thank you that you died for me. I believe that you rose from the dead. And now, Lord, I'm giving you permission. I'm giving you the right to my life to be my Lord. And Lord, would you be my Savior? In your name I pray. Forty-three years ago, a 19-year-old young man said yes to Jesus. 
and the gift of salvation, I opened up that gift and it was full of the joy of the Lord. So this morning, some of you might be saying, well, how can we do communion every Sunday? Why do we do this? It's because we never, never want to forget what Jesus has done for us. Amen. And we need to tell it to the next generation, to our children and our grandchildren. Can we all stand up and hold our communion? Thank you, God. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my, in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whoever eats the bread and drinks this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's hold the bread. Oh God, let us never forget, Lord God, what you've done for us on that cross. That you gave your life at Calvary, Lord Jesus. That your body was broken and bruised because you were thinking of us. And God, today as we hold this emblem up, we never want to forget what you've done and say, thank you, Jesus. Let's all take it together. And let's hold up the cup. And Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for the cup that represents the blood of Christ that was spilled out for us, Lord God. Every drop of that blood that fell, Lord, said how much you love us and that you paid the price for our sins. And God, we will never forget, Lord God, as we drink this cup, we will remember what you've done to Calvary for us, Lord God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's drink together. And then it says they sang a hymn, they sang a song, so let's just worship the Lord as we go out this morning. Thank you, Jesus.